I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We're going to start off tonight with a prayer from our good Christian brother, Christian. Our dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you tonight for your and your beautiful spirit that we can feel tonight. We want to thank you for your for our families and our and you gospel and we want to ask in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ that you may help us tonight to understand your word and only your word and please that tonight we can reach and understand better your scriptures and we say these things humbly in, in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ Amen. Amen Our brother Christian listen last week we had a caller who uh, he had a question for me about God and uh, how could we worship a God or a trust a God who would kill babies and women and children. And uh, I received an email from someone named John. He's a caller on the show as well from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he said, call me. And so I called him and we had a conversation. He said, you look like you were kind of caught in a, a deer in the headlights. And I was. And the reason is, I, in my faith, as I've read the scripture and stuff, I haven't given much thought, and maybe this is a cop out, but I haven't given much thought to the things that God has done in the Old Testament. I trust in faith that he knows what he's doing and there's a purpose for it and it has a good reason in mind. But nevertheless, uh, it, I was kind of like a deer caught in the heads. I didn't have a really strong answer. So John said, I do. And so I called him when we talked and I said, why don't you call in on the show and give us a quick summary of how we explain the Old Testament God, etc. John is on the line from Tulsa, Oklahoma, so we're going to kick it off with hearing from him right now. John, can you hear me? In mind, but nevertheless, uh, it, I was kind of like a podcast. I didn't have a really strong answer. So John said, I do. So I called him when we talked, and I said, why don't you call in on the show and give us a quick summary of how we explain the Old Testament God, etc., John is on the line from Tulsa, Oklahoma, so we're going to kick it off with hearing from him right now. John, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I can hear you. I can't, I can't hear you uh, on the phone right now, but anyway, am I on? Shake your head yes. Okay. All right. All right, uh, Sean, uh... Vincent, last week when he called in, I, I listened to the show, and uh, can you hear me okay? Go ahead. All right. When he called in last week uh, and talked about those babies and everything, I, I it, it dawned on me that I, I, what I've studied in the Old Testament, there's a lot of scriptures, and I don't want to. I don't want people to take this the wrong way, but there's some uh, translation that the translators took license with. To describe the nature of God. Well, so I'm on good. Uh, and this this nature, uh, they took the words. There's five Hebrew words that uh, they translate all of them the same way as wrath. And the actual translation probably would be closer to saying that he was sorrowful and was really hurt about what was going on. Not that he was really wrathful. And uh, God, uh, 
many cases, you know, like like the Old Testament, the, the, the laws that Moses laid down, originally he wanted to be have a personal relationship with us. He called the children of Israel to come up on the mountain and talk with him, but they didn't want to do that. They were so afraid of God that they didn't want to go up there. They were afraid of the lightning, the thunder, and all that. So they refused to, to talk with him. So God had no choice but to put a prophet over them at that time, Moses, uh, to, to give his laws and things to them and to try to kind of be like a go-between. And I want everybody to remember that Moses made a statement that in the days... In the future, there would be a prophet raised up who they would listen to, and he was talking about Jesus that would come later in the future. And he said the people would have to listen to them, him then. Well, all through history in the Old Testament, the Jews, I mean, not Jews, but the Israelites, they uh, backslid. They never to get close to God. And Moses had a heck of a time controlling them, and he had to give them hard and stiff-necked laws instead of simple laws like love your neighbor as yourself. Just thought, and, and and so he had six hundred and forty hard, tough laws to try to keep the people to be able to live at peace. Anyway, uh, what I'm trying to say is that God is not a killer God of the Old Testament. That he he tried many times to to have, do it peacefully. He he told the children of Israel when they went into the Promised Land, "I will send the hornets in and drive out the Canaanites." Before you, he he had he he brought out the elements to stop people. He had the, he had the Ark of the Covenant to to lead before them during the war and stuff. He didn't want them shedding blood, but for some reason, and we don't have all the details on it. Josh, a bunch of those people got together and took swords and went in and started a war before God could drive them out with the bees. Now they had a problem. They had a problem with the the, the enemies that enemies and their children would hate them and start wars, and then on there would be no peace in the land. At that time, God let them kind of handle themselves, let them go on and uh, defend themselves in war and do the things that are written in there, if we have the proper translation about it. And I'm not so sure we do. I'm going to tell you why. The Jewish uh, rabbis, uh, when they wrote down the scriptures that were passed down from word of mouth, Moses and about 450 years before the time of Christ, they started writing them down. They had trouble even reading the Hebrew. There were some of the Hebrew language, and they, they had trouble translating for that. A lot of it was word of mouth, and, and it, it basically the whole story, we get that, but we don't know exactly who's at fault, even though it makes it sound like God did all this stuff. There are scriptures in there. One of them says, like, for instance, uh, said that... Uh, God killed Saul. Another place it says Saul killed himself and fell on his sword. Can't both be right. Uh, there, that, that happens in two or three different places in there where it says, well, like it says, it says hey, uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Another place it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Have it both ways. Anyway. John. Yeah. Really yeah. appreciate your uh, thoughts on this. It gives another dimension to the uh, argument. Thanks for calling all the way from Tulsa. Can, can I give you one more point I'd like to bring up? Yep. The Torah from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom, during right before the time that they put it all in writing, the one from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom do not match exactly word for word. Hmm. Bring that up. There are some translation errors, even in the old Hebrew. Interesting. Really appreciate it, my brother. You take care. Hey, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, really, John's uh, point to summarize in another way is that um, when we look at Jesus and uh, we see how God wants to be known and we look at what he was and what he did, there's a disconnect between that and what God was in the Old Testament. And all along we've said, well, that's because this and that's because of that. John's point is, listen, the word for wrath has been misinterpreted from the Hebrew. That needs to be looked at because you'll find that the very same heart that was in Jesus was in the uh, heart of the Old Testament God and that there has been some issues with that. Check it out. Test it. 
throw it out the window if you don't agree, but it's something to consider. All right, before we get on the remainder of Kunstler's speech tonight from BYU-Idaho, four weeks ago I said that we were going to start highlighting some Christians that kind of exist outside of the evangelical norm. And, and we started uh, uh, four weeks ago with somebody, then we got involved with Kunstler's speech. But tonight I want to quickly highlight uh, a, a Christian who is a Christian in a very unique way, and some people discount him as a Christian, and his name is Leo Tolstoy. Here's a picture of Tolstoy for uh, what he kind of looks like me <laughs> in days of yore. That's a perfect picture. Oh, write many books. I will write many books. Why don't people listen to me? <laughs> He's rolling over in his grave right now. Uh, there's so much to consider about Tolstoy, we've got to be really brief. He's Russian. His novels, even today, considered to be some of, if not the greatest uh, ever written, War and Peace, uh, Anna Karenina, and The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Um, he, has, he and his wife had 13 children, 10 of whom survived, and he died in 1910, having been born in 1828. He failed as a university student, he failed at a bunch of different things, and he joined the military, and he found success in writing while he was in the field as serving in the Crimean War, and his book, Anna Karenina, shot him into the halls of literary acclaim, but despite success in writing that book, he suffered a spiritual crisis, and he became very depressed. And struggling over the meaning of life, he first went to the Russian Orthodox Church where he was baptized, and he said, I need help. I need answers. Now, stop for a minute. This was a man of stupendous intellect and ability who's having a spiritual crisis, and he actually went to the religious institution of his day, and he said, help me. And what did, they, what did he get from them? He got dogma. He got... Uh, conform to our way and shut your mouth, he got, uh, and what he walked away is he said, I see nothing but corruption. That, that was from the church. So according to the writings of his children and his wife, Tolstoy was, quote, the most religious man on the face of the earth. That's how devout his heart was to God. And he was committed to the uh, ethos of Christ and committed to God, but utterly dissatisfied with the answers given to him by the Orthodox Church. And so conflicted, his wife wrote that he was filled with a spiritual germ, not, and germ being a good thing, the first seed that blossomed, and he became sure of his path, is how, it put, how he put it. And so he left Orthodoxy, and the only way we can put it is, he created his own form of Christianity. And now let me state emphatically that Tolstoy maintains some beliefs that I personally don't agree with, but uh, especially relative to the miracles, uh, deity of Christ, he had a problem with. I mean, and people are going to freak out about that. Uh, and he possessed a very anti-supernatural view of Christianity. But we have to consider what he saw, what he faced, what he lived, what he learned, and in addition to the religious institution of immense power, the Russian Orthodox Church pressing in on him uh, and only seemed to care about its rules and everybody doing it their way, uh, he didn't get answers to some very troubling questions. So we see this today, men and women, many of them in their teens today, who are very gifted, very different, at odds with dogma, but they're not getting sufficient responses they're not getting reasonable insights into this beautiful faith that we possess, but instead are being railroaded into conform or be cast out rather than being allowed to bask in his love and have some independent thoughts of who he is. So what did Tolstoy do? Uh, as I said, he, he took an amalgamation of the gospel accounts. He took Christian anarchy and he sold himself out to feed the poor. He sold himself out to stand for human rights. He established free education for Russian children. And grieving over his own personal wealth, he renounced it completely. He had a, a, a tremendous amount of wealth. And he wore a peasant's garb. And he did all he could to give it away to those less fortunate than himself. So much so that he and his wife just were at each other's throats because he was trying to live this ascetic life and get rid of everything, and she was trying to retain it for her family, which is normal. So 
more than anyone I have ever read about, Mother Teresa included, uh, uh, except maybe uh, Gandhi, Tolstoy actually lived what Jesus describes in Matthew 25, uh, 34. It says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him and say, Lord, when did we... When were you hungry and we fed you? When were you thirsty and we gave you drink? All those things. And Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And Tolstoy did. I mean, he lived what Christ taught in that, uh, in that account. So I wholly, you know, I don't agree with all of what Tolstoy uh, believed and taught. But doctrine, we will always divide on that. What did the man do? And in my estimation, he represents a very... Uh, solid shining light in the Christian faith. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. We've been going through the Word of God and pulling out the passages that seem to support what I suggest Christian subjectivity is all about. And uh, that is, listen, we're going to differ on doctrine. Let's come together in faith and in love. So in 1 Peter, that's the book we're in, we see, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So again, the key, the key is love. It is love. I was mocked the other day by a Christian fellow. Oh, this love stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what it is about. It is about love. I realize I could be misappropriated, but... Then in 1 Peter 2, 4, 5, Peter says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, he says to the believers, You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Nothing material in that description. He says, we are lively stones. We're living people. How can we be stones? We're living stones of this temple that is not made with hands, and we, are, we offer spiritual sacrifices. That means we die to our flesh. Spiritual sacrifices, all the other stuff uh, is uh, a wayside. To believers who uh, hurt and bite and fight against each other, Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 11, Finally, be you all of one mind, he says, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Knowing that you are called thereunto, that you should inherit a blessing, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. That is a, that is a fabulous, compact verse that just shows you how we should be to each other. We, I mean, with everybody of every faith, I really believe anyone who's claiming Christ as the Savior, who shed blood, saves us, there's one God, why can't we get along? Does there have to be a bunch of other stuff? And then in 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus, the grand arche of our faith, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. He is the, uh, the archegos of this faith. He is the actuating principle of our faith. He is the one we look to. He is the key. Not each other in positions of authority. He is the one who rules the heart. And then finally, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2, he says, For as much as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. We don't need to worry about what men want us to do. You don't have to worry about what I want you to do or anybody else wants you to do. You live to the will of God and the will of God can be made known to you directly from God through His Spirit to you. 
We don't need intermediaries. We don't need television shows. We don't need pastors from the pulpit sticking, sticking themselves in to be exercise lordship over us on how to do everything. Peter is clear in this in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. I mean, don't, if you are called, don't exercise lordship and authority over people, he says to the shepherds. He says, but be Christ to them. And how was Christ? He was loving. So all that is uh, there from the word. And now how about let's put Kunstler's speech to bed. One of the important elements in Mormonism that we have to acknowledge is that it does do good things. Uh, can't be denied. But it's an admixture of great standards of morality, apparently, prescribed in the name of Jesus Christ and claims that they do it because it's his church, while oddly representing practices and doctrines and teachings and policies with which Jesus had nothing to do. Uh, eternal marriage, Jesus says the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. Joseph Smith said differently. He said it's eternal. Uh, temples with veils, we know that when Jesus, Jesus said, hey, not one stone of this temple is going to remain uh, upon the other, that God himself took the veil that was in the temple when Jesus died, tore it in two, from top to bottom, Joseph Smith put it back up. It's a great question to ask any Latter-day Saint. Go through and take the time and say, listen, the temple, do you understand what happened when Jesus died? What that symbolized when the, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the masses was torn in two. It was saying, God says, it's over. It's open to all. There's no more priesthood. There's no more intermediary. So the question you ask them is, why did Joseph Smith put a veil back up? It's a great question to ask them. Abstinence from alcohol. Jesus was called a wine-bibber. Worldly wealth like City Creek. Jesus had nothing to do with it. I mean, even fighting homosexual agendas. Have you ever noticed Jesus didn't even talk about gays? Didn't even talk about homosexuals. And yet this becomes such a big thing now. So to me, Mormonism is sort of like a major corporation today, really powerful, that has come in and kind of taken over the identity of like a Tolstoy. And it's put Tolstoy's picture on all their buildings and everything. And it represents this corporate idea. But Tolstoy would have nothing to do with what Mormonism represents. And to me, it's similar the way Christ was, but how his picture is used and his image uh, in that way. So anyway, I say all this in preparation to a quote that Kunstler now gives from former LDS president Ezra Taft Benson, who says, Anything or anybody disaffect or sour us toward that great gift which Christ has given us, his church. Okay, stop. What that quote said is, our task from Ezra Taft Benson is to stick with the kingdom not to let anything or anybody disaffect or sour us to that great gift that Christ has given us, this church. Herein lies the difference between religion and relationship, my friends. Religion, religionists say the greatest thing God gives us is an institution. It's a church. Come, belong, support it, be part of it, do it. And religionists, relationships say the greatest gift that Christ gave us was his life and his shed blood. There's the difference. So in addition to hijacking his name and images of him, Mormonism also commandeers his purpose and suggests that he gave us a brick-and-mortar institution. He gave us a literal institution, one truly made of man-made things that are shakable uh, and that people must join it in order to enter into his presence again. This is the final product of a massive misappropriation, misdirection, of a number of biblical tenets. Mormonism, like Catholicism, has taken the biblical concept out of context and then applied it to itself in terms of baptism, gift of the Holy Spirit, laying on hands, priesthood, temple rites, and assortment of other elements that the LDS claim are necessary to salvation and exaltation. They have proprietized these concepts that are biblical and they have moved them into like the McDonald's chain and said, here are your fries. Do you want to, you know, drink with that? It's like you order it and you complete it and then you're doing it. And that it was never the spirit of what the New Testament narrative gives us. Okay, at this point, Cutler begins to wrap up his speech and says, Today,
acted on a few testimonies of and about Joseph Smith. We know that he's a mighty prophet. We know that he is a choice seer and a great revelator and testator. Although we have received so many blessings through him, do we really know him? Do we know how great he really is? Okay, uh, he says, today we've reflected on a few testimonies about Joseph Smith. We know he is a mighty prophet. We know he is a choice seer. We know he's a great revelator and testator. Although we have received so many blessings through him, unfreaking un believable. Do we really know him? Do we know how great he really is? Now notice that's in the present tense, is. Do you know what Kunstler's doing? He's smith-myth-making. He, he is making a man someone bigger and better than what humanity is. And we do this with men when God is no longer enough for us. We do it when Jesus is no longer enough. We, we supplant them with other things that kind of um, fill a need in the human nature to look at something tangible. And so, you know, we heroize our movie and our rock stars and our political saviors and others who have all gone to the grave. It's normative for men to worship men because, uh, and that's exactly what Kunstler is doing here. Now, with all speeches, the wrap-up in this one has got to be big. It's got to be big. It's got to leave people feeling uplifted. It's got it's to seal the deal. So Kunstler at this point begins to really pour it on. And what he does is he starts bringing in Joseph Smith's own words about his own life. Are you ready? Listen closely. Go ahead. He said, you don't know me. You never knew my heart. No man knows my history. I cannot tell it. I shall never undertake it. I never did harm any man since I was born in the world. I never think any evil, nor do anything to the harm of my fellow man. When I am called by the trump of the archangel and weighed in the balance, you will all know me then. I add no more. God bless you all. So he asked the question, do we really know how great he was? And then he quotes Joseph Smith who says, you don't. You don't know me. You never knew my heart. No man knows my history, quoting the title uh, from Fawn Brody's book. I cannot tell it. I shall never undertake it. And then listen to what he says. I never did harm any man since I was born into the world. I mean, <laughs> we're talking Christ, Christ here, you guys. This is, this is like semi, if not full-blown deity. I never did harm any man since I was born into the world. Another quote, I never think any evil nor do anything to harm my fellow man. And then he says, to justify, when I am called by the trump of the archangel and weighed in the balance, you will all know me then. I add no more, God bless you all. Modern psychology and their DSM manuals today have been able to take statements like those that Smith made of himself so long ago and properly categorize them as expressions of somebody who has overt narcissistic personality disorder. This is exactly what it is. I mean, when someone says, I have never, ever done anything harmful to another human being, they are full of shiitake mushrooms. They are full of it. And then when they say, I never think any evil, any evil, nor do anything of harm to my fellow man. Does that include banging as Al, uh, Annie Falger? I mean, whatever her name is, Fanny Alger. 
Whoa. Fanny Alger, when she's a teenager in the barn and Oliver sees him, was that not doing any harm to any man? Was there any evil thought in there? I mean, it is unbelievable. A condition where people really believe they are great and innocent and Messiah-like is a true condition. Uh, and here's the thing. It's either true or it's false. Okay? If true, the man ought to be linked to Christ. Okay? I mean, because he's Christ. He's Christ. Second Christ. Uh, but if it's false, he should be utterly abandoned. So the question is, do you believe this about this man and his own statements? If he's able to say these things about himself and you know good and well they're not true, then you know good and well you should get away from everything else he taught. If you think it's possible that it's true, then you're going against scripture, which says that all men have sinned, all of us. And so you don't believe what the scripture says. You're believing that Joseph Smith's self-proclamations of being innocent and having no sin. Okay, uh, Kunstler continues. Go ahead. Perhaps we will only fully know the greatness of Joseph Smith after this life. According to those who associated with him, the prophet said, Would to God, brethren, I could tell you who I am. Would to God I could tell you what I know. But you would call it blasphemy. And there are men upon this stand who would want to take my life. Such evil men did take the life of Joseph Smith. But as Brigham Young testified, though they have killed his body, yet he lives and beholds the face of his Father in heaven." Close quote. Today, I believe and am sure that Joseph Smith has triumphed over all his enemies, and the last enemy was death. Okay. He says, perhaps we will only fully know the greatness of Joseph Smith after this life. According to those associated with the prophet said, would to God, brethren, I would tell you who I am. Well, that's, that's a careful quote. Would to God I could tell you what I know, but you would call it blasphemy. There's men who are on this very stand that would take my life. And now Kunstler begins to really get emotional. Such evil men did take the life of Joseph Smith. But as Brigham Young testified, though they have killed his body, yet he lives and beholds the face of his father in heaven. Today, I believe, Kunstler says, and am sure that Joseph Smith has triumphed over all his enemies and the last enemy was death. Now, let me tell you something. I want you to hear a passage from 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 26. It talks about Christ and it says, Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered the kingdom up to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Speaking of Christ, Kunstler says, speaking of Smith, Today I am sure that Joseph Smith has triumphed over all his enemies and the last enemy was death. It's a direct comparison between Smith and Christ, both having victory over death. Uh, this, is, this is serious schnitt. It's very serious. And we can see how Kunstler once again has compared Smith to Jesus. All of this, however, is leading to the final big finale point. And let's go. Let's get ready. Go ahead. the last of Joseph Smith. He is not merely a prophet of the past. He says, brothers and sisters, we have not seen the last of Joseph Smith. He is not merely a prophet of the past. Whoa. Now, what's he really trying to say here? Uh, what is he then? Uh, will he apparently play a role, a continued role in our present world? Kunstler couldn't be suggesting that maybe Joseph Smith has overcome death, is now a god, that passing all the tests he's going to reign somehow on this earth? Is Kunstler saying people are expected, should expect 
not only Jesus to return, but Smith too? Um, at this point in Kunstler's talk, he quotes from an apostle, Parley P. Pratt. Now listen, if I was to pull from Parley P. Pratt's speeches and was to share them with you, they would, the LDS would say, that's not doctrine, that's not true, Parley P. Pratt didn't speak for the church, but Kunstler has the right to pull from it and use it to uh, uh, undergird his message. So listen to another yet emotional reading of Kunstler talking about the revelations from another man, Parley P. Pratt. When Joseph and Hiram were in Carthage, Elder Parley P. Pratt was traveling on his way home to Nauvoo from a mission. In the very hour their innocent blood was being shed, a strange and solemn awe came over Elder Pratt, as if the powers of hell were let loose. When he later heard that Joseph and Hiram had been killed, he cried out in anguish, O oh Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray thee, show me what these things mean, and what shall I say to thy people in Nauvoo? On a sudden, the Spirit of God came upon me, and while the Spirit of Revelation glowed in my bosom with as visible a warmth and gladness as if it were fire, the Spirit said unto me, Lift up your head and rejoice, for behold, it is well with my servants Joseph and Hiram. My servant Joseph still holds the keys of my kingdom in this dispensation, and he shall stand in due time on the earth, in the flesh, and fulfill that to which he is appointed. So in reading this, what is Kunstler suggesting exactly what it sounds like? He says that Joseph Smith will return to this earth and stand in due time, in the flesh, and fulfill all that which was appointed. Just as many Christians believe that Jesus is going to come back and complete, was he, complete what he was appointed to do, the LDS expect both Jesus and Smith another parallel to the king. If you think Kunstler is off using this quote from Parley P. Pratt, and you're going to justify that, well, Kunstler now is going to quote from Brigham Young, who says somewhat of almost the same thing. Go ahead and play it. President Brigham Young gave us the same witness. He said, Joseph Smith Jr. will again be on this earth, dictating plans and calling forth his brethren, and he will never cease his operations under the directions of the Son of God until the last ones of the children of men are saved that can be from Adam till now. Should not this comfort all people? They will, by and by, be a thousand times more thankful for such a man as Joseph Smith, Jr., than it is possible for them to be for any earthly good whatever. It is his mission to see that all the children of men are saved that can be through the redemption. Close. So Brigham Young's quote certainly does place the Son of God above Smith there. And he has Smith, though, the one who is bringing about the redemption and applying it to all the children of the, of the world. He says that he will work under the directions of the Son of God until the last ones from the children of men will be saved that can be from Adam until now. So Smith is not just the prophet of this final dispensation. He is the one who has been assigned by Christ to oversee the redemption of all people that can be from Adam until this present day. Um, that means Smith is not just the savior to this dispensation. He is the sub-savior to the whole of humanity. This is very serious. Now, Kunstler wraps it up completely. Go ahead. When compared to these testimonies of the Lord's prophets, my own testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith may mean very little to you, but it is everything to me. All spiritual blessings from the Lord 
have come to me because of Joseph Smith. You wonder why the LDS who are faithful to their temple covenants, they have the blessings sometimes of this world. They have a peace that this world brings. They have a different type of life than people who are sold out to Christ have. It's because they've given their allegiance to someone from this world, of this world, born of this world, sinful of this world, and in his heart he had ambitions of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. The Mormon kingdom is of this world, and so is their savior, who is Joseph, this intermediate savior. He says, my testimony of Smith means everything to me. All spiritual blessings, he does say of the Lord, have come to me because of Smith. I'm going to tell you something. God does not share his glory. God had an only begotten son. He has a son. And he sent him. And Hebrews 11.1 says that, 1, 1 through 3 says that in the days past, he used to speak to us through prophets. But now he speaks to us through his son. Through his son. No one else. Muhammad said there's another to come with a final testament. Joseph Smith said there's another to come that has to bring forward the truth. Everyone is stepping in and saying, I am bringing forth what needs to be done now. It's not true. He had his son. His son did it all when he said it was finished. Don't be fooled. When a man says that his testimony of Joseph Smith means everything, run. Final conclusion. Go ahead. All of the scriptures, the priesthood, my baptism for the remission of my sins, the gift of the Holy Ghost, which bears a true witness of the Father and the Son to me, the ordinances of the temple, which bind my ancestors and my posterity to me and my precious wife, all of these blessings and countless others, are given unto me because of the prophet Joseph Smith. I love him. It is because of him that the very blessings of the atonement of Jesus Christ can be fastened and made sure unto us. I invite all to gain a sound and enduring witness of the prophet Joseph Smith and the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, which has come through him. It is my prayer that each of us will reverence the name of Joseph Smith in word and in deed, that in a future day, many of us, perhaps millions, shall know Brother Joseph again. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So that wraps up the speech, four parts. In the end, he says all the scriptures, the priesthood, my baptism for the remission of my sins, the gift of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit, the true witness of the Father and the Son to me, the ordinances of the temple which bind my ancestors and my prosperity to me and my precious wife. All of these blessings and countenances are given unto me because of Joseph Smith. He says me and my about nine times in that single paragraph. That's what it's about. Me and my blessed by following Joseph Smith. He says that he hopes we will reverence Joseph Smith in word and deed. And he says that enduring the uh, restored gospel of Jesus Christ through him is what grants us the blessings. And then he finishes with perhaps millions shall know brother Joseph again. I believe, I believe if we collectively continue to move out and use this speech, billions will know the heart of Mormonism now instead of millions knowing, uh, uh, Brother Joseph again, we need to know that we need to know that billions know the heart of Mormonism now, and it is captured in this speech. Let me we have two calls. Let me just quickly say this, and it's got to be a quick summary. I'm going to try to do it quickly. In this speech, this is what he said. We link the names of Jesus Christ to Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith is the hinge that turns the gate that leads to salvation. The measure of a person's spiritual maturity is their loyalty to Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith has God say that the ends of the earth, the pure in heart, the wise and noble will seek after him. 
quote, the devil knows that if he can only destroy the character of Joseph Smith in our hearts, then we will be barred from the presence of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith is the passport into the presence of God. These are all quotes. He gives us three keys. Why? To prepare to know the prophet Joseph Smith as he really was and who he really is, that we may gain entrance into the mansion where God and Christ dwell. The first key, beware of many voices that humanize, humanize Joseph Smith by calling into question any aspect of his character. His weaknesses are all alleged in the speak. His flaws perceived. His actions were all in obedience to God. Quote, he was righteous, pure, and innocent. Quote, he was more like the Savior than any man to walk the earth. Brigham Young said no better man ever lived. John Taylor said Joseph Smith has done more for the salvation of man than anyone save Jesus Christ. Boyd K. Packer said Joseph was the greatest to ever walk the face of the earth save Christ. Gordon B. Hinckley said, I look to him, I love him, I seek to follow him, I read his words and they become the standards to be observed in guiding this great church. The second key that Kunstler gives is study Joseph Smith's words. Quote, Joseph Smith's words are still and always will be the standard for guiding the true church of Christ. Wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all of Smith's words and commandments, which he, Smith, will give unto you, walking, Smith, in all holiness before me, is a Doctrine and Covenants 122 passage that Smith had God say of himself. Joseph Smith was walking in all holiness with God. The word of the Lord, the standard works have all come through Joseph Smith, Kunstler said. He gave us the Bible, in particular the plain and precious excerpts in the Joseph Smith translation. In writing the scriptures, the ancient prophets all had their eyes fixed, not only on Christ Jesus, but also on Joseph Smith. We can come to see the prophet Joseph, including his mission and character throughout all the scriptures, and he gives us examples. In Isaiah, King Josiah, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, prophesied by Daniel. In the faithful and wise servant, spoken by Jesus, in the parables of the leaven, hidden in three measures of meal. Quote, as we humbly search the scriptures, we will come to know both Christ Jesus and his servant Joseph Smith. May I offer a suggestion? If we truly want to know the prophet, we must go to the right source, and that is not a Google search. Ezra Taft Pinson is, is quoted as the mark of a truly educated man is to know what not to read. They will come to know the prophet better by partaking of his fruit, Joseph Smith's, the scriptures. The third key and last key, the third thing that we must do to know that Joseph Smith is a true prophet is to be loyal to the Mormon church. We cannot, quote, know the Savior or Joseph Smith without being 100% loyal to this church and to the priesthood keys held by the prophets that now preside over it. Our task is to stick with the kingdom and not let anything or anyone disaffect or sour us to that great gift that Christ has given his church. Although we have received so many blessings through Joseph Smith, do we really know him? Do we really know who he is? Joseph Smith said of himself, I never did any harm to any man since I was born into this world. He said, I never think, have thought any evil nor do anything to harm my fellow man. Though they have killed yet his body, Brigham Young said, he lives and beholds the face of his father in heaven. Today, quote, I believe and am sure that Joseph Smith has triumphed over all his enemies and the last enemy was death. Brothers and sisters, we have not seen the last of Joseph Smith. He is not merely a prophet of the past. His, that servant, Joseph Smith, holds the keys to the kingdom. In this dispensation, God told Parley P. Pratt, Joseph Smith Jr. will again be on this earth dictating the plans and calling forth his brethren and will never cease his operations under the direction of the Son of God until the last ones of the children of men will be saved that can be saved from Adam until now. And he ends with his own testimony and says, it is the most important thing in his life. Scripture says from Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He mentions nothing about anybody else, and we shouldn't either. All right, we're going to go really quickly to a spot. We're going to come back to Mark in Ireland, Brandon in Vicksburg, and Jared in Southern California. Be right back. Trust in the 
people's opinions? Are you tired of having other people dictate how you live your life? Open the freaking Bible. Sick of being told what to believe by men and pastors? You have the right, read the Word of God by the Spirit and let God tell you what to believe and then believe it. You don't have to agree with me or anybody else, but your liberty is not going to come by not doing anything. Your liberty comes by reading the Word of God. All right, listen, uh, Brother Dave points out a couple things. First of all, uh, you want to know the, 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 what is really anti-Mormon literature? Church history is anti-Mormon literature. Just read the church history. Just read church history. And the Bible's anti-Mormon literature. Just read the Bible. Great point. And he also says, if Joseph overcame death, this is a tremendous point, who are the witnesses of his resurrection? Jesus gave us 500 plus. Who are the witnesses? That's a great point. All right, we're going to go to Brandon in Pittsburgh, uh, and then Mark in Ireland. Brandon, you're on Heart of the Matter. Is this Sean? It is. Oh, what's going on, man? It's good to hear from you. Good to hear from you. What's new? I've been trying to talk to you for a year. <laughs> Sound like my wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really love you, Sean. I do. And it helped me a lot. I'm, um... I've got to meet a lot of LDS people here because um, I'm in Mississippi and that's where I live. Is, there's only one church here. So everybody who's LDS knows each other. And I went to school with a bunch of them and uh, I got to witness to them, to them what Jesus did. I noticed that a lot of the time they had really never heard, you know, they heard what Jesus did, but they didn't. That's just their brother, you know what I mean? Yeah. So... I would, uh, in the middle of me witness to him, while I was doing all that, I found your show. <laughs> and I've watched it. And I've watched almost every episode. And I just can't get enough of it because you love Mormons. You love LDS people. And that's why I like it. It couldn't be a show where you just bash on them. But you love them. That's why you do what you do. That's a witness. That's a true witness. To see these people go to heaven and meet the Jesus they never knew. Amen, brother. And I do. I love what you do. I talked to a guy who knows you named Danny, Brother Danny. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about. I called him a few times. Yeah. Yes, Danny Larson. He's a great he's a great brother out here. Really he works in the ministry answering emails and make talking to people on the phone. Oh man, he was a great help for me. He really was. Awesome. Um, in the middle of all this, God's called me to preach. Wow. I, I do preach now, and I can't thank you enough because now I, I, I don't just preach to those who, who don't know Jesus. I preach to the LDS people. I, I got to witness to one of them, and she she was a sister or a, a missionary or whatever, and um, she wanted to get saved but was never allowed to come talk to me again. Huh. Well, Lord will reach her. I believe that. Yeah. I really do. Now, well, um, I pray for you. I really that, do. I pray for you, and I, and I hope it never ends because you're reaching people. You reach me. You talk to me, and I, I consider you a friend for that. I hope one day we can have a mansion in heaven beside each other and talk to each other about it. Likewise, my brother. I look forward to it. Thanks so much for calling. Really appreciate it. Keep going. I will, I will, and thank you, and you keep going. All right, we'll keep trying. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. You know, that accent, it almost makes me want to snuggle up into his neck. <laughs> and I'm not that way. <laughs> okay, we're going to Mark in Ireland. Now, this is our brother Mark, who's always got some, something smart I looking to say to me. <laughs> Well, good morning, Mr. McCraney. How are you doing? Good morning, my brother. How are you? Uh, I don't think I have a lot of time, do I? You don't have much, Mark. You're going to have to, you're gonna have to do your stand-up in about 30 seconds. Oh, come on. That's so unfair. Get to it, my brother. Lusty Wendy's waiting to talk with you. Well, she's been talking to me like for the half, last half an hour. Okay, look, I've got a pain in my hoop with this guy. Um, he's got a face like haunted Tupperware. Um, he's completely... 
molested and altered the quotes that he's got. Um, he says that no man on earth can say that Jesus lives and deny the same time the prophet Joseph. The actual quote is no man on earth can say that Jesus lives and deny at the same time my assertion about the prophet Joseph. And that's an assertion. So uh, the Brigham Young, he gives it like a, a, a fairly big paragraph beforehand. Again, um, Gordon B. Hinckley, he represents, the, in the words of Gordon B. Hinckley, the hinge. That's not what he said. Gordon B. Hinckley said, Hinckley, what's it, Hinckley? Um, yeah. Um, I submit that if Joseph Smith talked with God the Father, his beloved son, da 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 this is the hinge on it. So he says, I submit that. That's, like, my submission is the hinge on the gate. So if you talk to God and God said, do this stuff, and you've done the stuff, then that can also act as a hinge. I, so I just have one question. I just have one question. To me, and it's not to you, it's to Mr. Kunzler. Why did you feel the need to alter the wording of comments if they were made by prophets? Mm. Surely, if these men, if these inspired men of God spoke, then the thinking has already been done. Ooh. It's a great insight, and you are full of them. We love your sense of humor, and we love your insight into these things, Mark. Keep sharing the gospel out there in your beautiful Greenland, and stay on the line because Wendy wants your phone number. Hold on one second. May I, may I, um, may I wish you all a very, very happy Thanksgiving. And we wish you the same. Oh, no, I can't. I mean, obviously nobody's going to understand this accent. So I get in trouble every this time. This this is Dr. Phil, and I'd like to wish Going some pork beef and hash! And, and a reckless happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> and uh, good, good, goodbye. Hang on. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, that guy burns me every time he talks to me. Wait, we've got to do this. We're out of time, but we've got to go to Jared. Jared, we are out of time, but please tell us what, you're say what you have to think. Jared? I just wanted to... Yeah, just wanted to say, uh, God bless you, man. Keep doing what you're doing. You look great, by the way. You look healthy. And uh, I'll call in next week with my question. No problem. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for your understanding. We look forward to it. God bless you, man. Take care. God bless you. Bye-bye. All right. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till the Hundred monkeys know, and I can feel.